the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This morning and this month, as we come to the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul leaves behind his teaching on marriage and singleness and begins a section on Christian liberty. This morning, we begin a multi-part series entitled Limiting Liberty. And this morning, we look at the foundational comparison. Now, what is Christian liberty? Let's start there. It's the idea that Christians are free to practice any activity that is not forbidden in Scripture. These are areas that we often refer to as gray areas. Gray areas because we know that right or wrong is clear in the Bible as black is to white. But the gray areas that fall within the bounds of Christian liberty are plentiful. They are not those that are condemned or forbidden in Scripture, and they are not necessarily things that are praised in Scripture. Here are some common examples of gray areas in our day and age. Drinking alcohol, smoking tobacco, holding hands or kissing before marriage watching certain TV shows and movies, how you spend your money. These are all gray areas. The Bible may give us instruction in terms of our hard attitudes, but in terms of the actual action or practice, it is not clear. So to address these types of issues, Paul begins by teaching on knowledge. And this is the foundation of the problem of abusing Christian liberty or viewing Christian liberty gray areas incorrectly, and that is knowledge, what you know. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see this teaching on knowledge. The first three verses of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians say this, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And in these three verses, I want to give you four foundational aspects of knowledge to help us understand Christian liberty. It is the foundation. That's why he starts there. So four foundational aspects of knowledge to understand Christian liberty. Because Paul starts there, because God starts there, we understand that to understand Christian liberty, we must begin here. Without a proper understanding of our knowledge, how to view our knowledge, how to use our knowledge, then we will not fully understand Christian liberty. We will give in to license and sin on the one hand or legalism on the other. So let's begin with the first foundational aspect of knowledge, the availability of knowledge the availability of knowledge, and that is it is available to everyone, specifically to all Christians. Look at the first sentence in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, we all know the reality of idols. Now, though there are many gray areas, areas of Christian liberty, Paul addresses one that the Corinthians themselves had written to him about. They had asked him about this. Though strange to most of us, it was a very real concern for the Corinthians, that of idols and eating meat sacrificed to idols. But in that particular situation, it provides us a helpful basis to our understanding of Christian liberty, of all Christian liberty, regardless of what the issue is. So the issue to eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols has been asked of Paul, and he now answers it. But let me explain what this issue is, why it's such a big deal. Now, you know in that time and place, religion was much more prominent than it is for us today in America. This was the heyday of the Roman and Greek polytheistic religions that are a significant part of 
ancient world history, a significant part of our studies here in America. What is for us a lot of stories was for the Corinthians a reality of existence. Even unbelievers, even as you were an unbeliever when you learned these things perhaps in high school, you didn't believe them. You didn't start worshiping Zeus. You didn't start believing finding a boyfriend or girlfriend had to do with sacrificing to Venus or Aphrodite. They were stories. They were part of world history. And we are going back to a time in where it wasn't history. It was the present for them. And so what is just stories for us was a real challenge for the Corinthian Christians back then. Not just being enmeshed in these religions, but seeing it all around them. There were temples and idols all over the place. In fact, this would have been a place where even as Christians, perhaps with our solid understanding today, we would want to visit to see the beautiful architecture and structures, though understanding they were dedicated to false gods. These religions were so integral to the culture that it affected not only the social life, but also the very economy of the day. I mean, I think about in uh, Ephesus, right? We read about this in Acts. Remember, there was a riot that broke out because they were bothered that Paul was preaching and so many people were converting to Christianity. But remember, this was a riot that was not started by Jesus-hating Jews, but by the craftsmen who were making a living by making idols and statues. Their business, their livelihood was so affected or potentially affected by the number of people turning to Christ and no longer buying these statues and these different idols, it was bad for business. And so the power of the gospel aside, this shows how significant idol worship was back then, even so much that the rise of the church affected the idol manufacturing industry and the entire economy back then. Also, in Acts chapter 17, we read of what is known as the best presentation of the gospel outside of the words of Jesus Christ himself in all of Scripture, the Sermon on Mars Hill or the Areopagus. Why was this? You remember that Paul had basically fled. He was waiting for his companions to join him. In Acts 17, it was a time to rest. It was not part of his planned itinerary, if you will. But we are told that he looked around, and it wasn't that he was looking for them or he happened to be at a particular temple. He was just there, and the whole city was so filled with idols and temples that we are told that Paul was, quote, provoked within him. He could not stay quiet. There was just too much. Some of you have experienced this. Even in going to Rome, you don't see it everywhere. You have to trek to St. Peter's Cathedral or you have to trek to the Vatican. It is not everywhere. There are places in Asia, especially Southeast Asia, where it is everywhere. You can't walk a city block without seeing a temple, without seeing incense, without seeing uh, the, uh, the, 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 the top of a temple just behind the building you're standing in front of. This is like what it was for Paul, not only in Athens, but also in Corinth. And so as you could imagine, perhaps you have even uh, partaken of this before you came to Christ. Idol worship was not just very prevalent, but is very involved. We kind of laugh it off. We read these stories and we don't realize how involved it was. It was very involved because, of course, as you know, false gods are based on the real God. False religions are based on the real religion. And so the intricacies of the Old Testament sacrifices would have been copied and emulated by these false religions as well. And so part of this worship was the offering of sacrifices. And we get closer to the issue at hand. The worshiper would bring an animal to the temple. The animal would be killed. And again, copying God's real law, the animal had to be without blemish. For most of these uh, false religions, however, rather than looking at the animal, they would also cut it open and look at the entrails, and the entrails had to be perfect. And if it was suitable for that god or goddess, certain parts of the animal would be burned on an altar outside of that temple. That would be that God's, that idol's portion. 
And that part of the uh, animal that was dedicated to that god or goddess was left on a special table outside uh, for them to enjoy or consume. Uh, it wouldn't always be meat. There would be uh, produce as well. You have perhaps seen this in Buddhist temples where they will leave oranges and different things and it would just sit there in front of the statue. That would be the same idea. You don't touch that. That's for the god, the deity. Another part of the animal would have been given to the worshipers to eat in a celebration, in honor of that deity. This was often a huge deal. Uh, A banquet would be held within the temple or whatever uh, area that they were celebrating. Even people who were not worshiping that particular god or goddess would be invited. This would be something where you would invite VIPs, important people and family members to have a, a big celebration, a big banquet to enjoy this animal that you have sacrificed to the Lord. Now, these animals were big, and so even though there was a portion for the God, there was a portion that was eaten, there would still be a lot left. And they were not going to let that go to waste, and so anything left over was sent to the butcher so that he could uh, sell it at the marketplace. Now, this meat was very, very desirable. Uh, just as if you uh, lived in, have ever lived or visited uh, some place in where um, uh, Islam is popular, as I once did, there are places that sell meat specifically that is suitable for people who are practicing Muslims. Uh, you have the same thing for Jews, kosher things today. You know that is higher quality. And so this was really desirable because physically it had to be high quality to be meat sacrificed at the temple. It was blemish-free, suitable for the offering. But also, this meat was spiritually clean, at least in their eyes, because the ceremonial sacrificing at that temple of the false god or goddess involved removing the demons from the animal. Obviously, we know this didn't really happen, but they did this thing where the followers of that religion believed that the demons were gone, and so you could buy this meat and eat it knowing that it was good quality meat physically, but also demon-free. And as silly as that sounds to us, you can understand how someone enslaved to such a pagan religion would be either terrified or relieved regarding the condition of their food. So how does this relate to the church at Corinth? As we've seen throughout our study, Paul is addressing various questions that the Corinthians had asked them in a separate letter that we don't have. This is one of them. And we know that phrase that he begins verse 1, chapter 8 with, now concerning or now about in the NIV, is an indication that not only is he changing topics, but he is now addressing something that they had asked about in their correspondence. And the issue is whether or not Christians are allowed to eat this type of food sacrificed to idols. Now, Rather than just giving them a yes or no, right or wrong answer, he systematically lays out the proper thinking in this matter. And that is so important uh, for all of us. Whenever we encourage someone, as the men are going through a book on uh, basically layperson's counseling, it's important not just to tell people, do this, don't do that, but to help them with their thinking, as we have modeled here by God, very God, through the Apostle Paul. Now, keep in mind... This is very helpful in addressing gray areas. It's helpful in addressing areas that are black and white because obviously we want people not just to do something or not do something. We want their heart and their understanding to be correct, but especially in gray areas so we can think through it properly so that in our minds, in our consciences, the gray becomes white or black. Now keep in mind he is talking to believers, Christians, Okay? And so the issue of eating meat is very different than if you were talking to someone who actually was invited to a banquet as a pagan guest. These are Christians. So these are not people who are concerned with the practices of pagan worship. They are not worshiping false idols. Some of them, uh, if not many of them, however, did. They were saved out of these religions. And so there is very clear, there are very clear experiences, memories. Now as believers, there's probably a lot of guilt because of things they did in the past. And this isn't even an issue 
where it's easy to be removed from that. For example, if there's a certain crew of, of kids you used to do drugs with and now you can distance yourself from them, you cannot even go to that part of the town or you can even move to another state and never see them again. This is different because even in walking to church, they would see these idols and temples and these memories would flood them. That's important to understand as to why this is an issue. As believers, they now know that idol worship is detestable to the real God. They know that idols are not real. They understand that idolatry opposes God and is, in fact, as Paul will say in chapter 10, demonic. What's more, idol worship, especially in Corinth, as we saw in the last chapter, was directly connected to sexual immorality because of the temple prostitutes. But knowing that all of that is fake, not real, doesn't exist, doesn't mean it doesn't still cause them to stumble because of their past experiences. In the same way, you have may have been sober since the day you were saved 30 years ago. But you still have problems when you turn on the TV and it's a biopic about a famous drug dealer or it's a show about the misuse of drugs. That still bothers you. Or even reading the news and hearing about heroin overdoses. That still bothers you. When I first uh, visited Albania in college uh, in the uh, mid-early 90s, Uh, They have uh, these coffee bars. They're everywhere. Every other shop, storefront, was a coffee shop. And they would blast music out of their shops. It was everywhere. It was so loud. And what they particularly liked at that time was 80s music. And I remember uh, on, I believe, the second team I was part of still when I was still in college uh, was a lady who was a good uh, 10 years older than me very mature, very solid Christian. And yet she had a problem every day because in the 80s, she was involved in such a sinful lifestyle, doing sinful things as an unbeliever while listening to that music, that music being pumped into her ears 24-7, and you couldn't even get away from it. You would hear it down the road just brought up these floods of memories. And yet, this was a very mature Christian. You understand what I'm saying here. You have those same experiences. And so, this is why Paul starts with this knowledge. And he's saying you have to not just understand that idolatry is not real, but you have to take into account other things. And so, Paul begins by saying we know that we all have knowledge. The phrase, we all have knowledge, is in quotes in the ESV, as it is believed that this is a phrase that was used by the Corinthians, perhaps even a common saying among them. Now, what is this knowledge that we all have? Again, I mentioned it earlier, but it is the truth about idols. He's saying, look, now that we're believers, we all know that idols aren't real. We all know that everyone's wasting their money sacrificing and leaving a portion of the meat and their fruits and vegetables on that table. Because the thing that they think is going to eat it or enjoy that does not exist. He is not lesser than God. He does not exist. We know that there were never any demons in the meat or that there is anything spiritually different from temple meat than just normal meat that hasn't gone through this process of being sacrificed and dedicated at a pagan temple. And there is no Christian that thinks otherwise. We all understand this. But again, Paul's point is that's not enough to solve the issue of whether or not you should eat this meat. In other words, knowing that pagan gods are real is not enough, or not real is not enough. It's not enough to solve the issue of Christian liberty. The facts of what is true or not are not enough. 
knowing that pagan gods are not real is not enough to justify the practice of any gray areas. There's more to consider. In other words, once again, whether eating such meat is right or wrong is not solely determined by what you know. So just knowing that the God is not real does not mean it's okay to eat the meat. Just knowing that you will not get drunk from a glass or two of beer or wine is not enough to justify drinking it. The truth of the fact that kissing or holding hands is not the same as premarital sex does not mean it's okay to kiss. The reality that being entertained by watching sin does not mean that you are practicing that sin of murder or whatever it may be does not answer the question of whether it's right or wrong to watch that movie. There's more to it. It's not just knowledge. You can't just look at the Bible and says, can't have premarital sex, that's all it says, and so we can do anything else. That's not enough. There's more. What's the more? That leads us to our second foundational aspect of knowledge, and that is the antithesis of knowledge. The antithesis of knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The end of verse 1. Wait, 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 wait. So what does knowledge and love have to do with whether I can eat that meat or not? To kiss or not? Drink or not? What does love have to do with this? Everything. Everything. Remember, we're laying a foundation here. And like the foundation of an award-winning architectural building... The foundation, which is just usually rebar and concrete, looks nothing like the structure it will hold up to the degree that it almost seems irrelevant, but we all know how important it is. No matter how beautiful, how many awards that building has won, you will not step foot in there if you know it has no foundation. So, why is knowledge, knowing facts, even theological facts, even Scripture, Not enough, because knowledge, Paul says, makes arrogant, literally puffed up with hot air like a a balloon. In other words, knowing these things is not enough, because if you just stop at knowledge and do not add love, it just makes you proud for knowing. In other words, there's no consideration of others, including God, if you just stop at knowledge. And we know people like this who just give us the facts to justify anything they want to do. But on the other hand, the antithesis, Paul adds that love edifies or builds up. Not you, but others. Knowledge does something negative to you. It just puffs you up. Love edifies others. And we know that Christianity is all about others. And this is because love takes into account the facts, the knowledge, yes, but goes beyond them to consider what may be going on in another person's life. It's not that we disregard or twist the truth to accommodate others, but we must couple our knowledge with true biblical love. If we don't, then we will arrogantly disregard others' feelings, edification, and situations, including their past experiences. We see this in the Corinthians, then we see this in the church now. People who are confronted for something they said that was discouraging or hurtful, well, what I said was true, and I didn't mean to hurt you, so my conscience is clear, so it's okay. It doesn't matter that your wife spent three days crying because I hurt her. And yet the irony is that those who stop at knowledge are somehow quick to pass judgment on others based on their assumptions without knowing the facts. And that goes back to the reality because knowledge makes arrogant. I think this is worse today because of our sense of self-entitlement. But the Christian life, friends, is not a criminal investigation or a legal contract where we just want the legal facts. We want love. We must love. See, love is empty of pride. Love considers others as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2. 
Love seeks to help. Love seeks to strengthen. Love seeks to encourage. Love seeks to protect others, not just protect your own reputation if that means crushing them or turning them down. Protects others. You know, somehow, in our clinging to sound doctrine, in a world where even evangelicals are dismissing God's truth, we have somehow started to equate doctrine, theology, greater knowledge of the Scriptures with maturity. And yet over and over again, God tells us that it's not knowledge, but love that shows a growing and healthy relationship with Him. We must have knowledge. We must know the truth of the Scriptures. That's how we practice love, based on that truth. But if we don't put that knowledge into practice with biblical, self-sacrificing love, then we are just feeding our egos and become not a help to others, but a danger. I did not say we become not a help to others, but a non-help. You become a danger. You hurt people. Knowledge alone makes us steamroll over others' convictions or impose our own. Can I be frank with you as your pastor? I find this especially true in churches like ours. Half of our members left churches because they were or were becoming liberal or seeker-sensitive, so they came to us, and I praise God for that. And the result is that we cling to the truth. We hold fast to knowledge. But the temptation is then to take that knowledge and abuse God's Word by judging our former churches or beating the other member, the former members and pastors over the head with it. You should do this. You're doing this wrong in an unloving way. And perhaps in a twisted form of taking this to the next level, we start idolizing the men whose books and sermons taught us the truth. MacArthur, Sprawl, Washer, Lawson, whomever. We must be careful. Speak the truth. Be passionate for God's glory. Hate heresy. But when you address people, do it in love. Don't throw bombs over the walls of the church. And may I give a warning to those of you who got excited by what I just said, especially when I mentioned those names, because you like to, like to criticize these men simply because you're annoyed by those who appreciate them. You too, my friend, misunderstand the roles of knowledge and love. There must be a balance between both. Love without truth is subjective and unbiblical. Truth without love is disobedience and has nothing to do with God. You can say His name, you can quote His Word. But without, without love, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13, it is absolutely worthless. And what's more, Paul gives us descriptions in that chapter that is actually quite annoying. Well, Paul goes on to say this even more clearly. In our third point, our third foundational aspect of knowledge to understand Christian liberty, and that is the affliction of knowledge. The affliction of knowledge. Look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. The truly wise man, the truly knowledgeable and wise individual, recognizes how little he actually knows, recognizes how ignorant he really is. If you take a step back, you will realize that nobody knows everything about everything. That's impossible. You may be an expert in your field, and no matter how proficient we may be in any number of topics, we are all naive about many other things. True maturity and knowledge is found in recognizing not only what you are naive about, but that you are, in fact, naive. Some of you have heard me tell you this before. I like to use a phrase, know what you don't know. 
What I mean by that is don't go pursue greater knowledge about things you're ignorant about. Know what you don't know means recognize what you are ignorant about and stop trying to wax eloquent or more to our context, counsel or advise other Christians when you, in fact, have no idea what you're talking about. We like to do that all the time because our pride refuses to let us say, I don't know, or to look dumb. And here's the reality. Not only in the church context, but even in the secular world, no one thinks you're dumb for not knowing certain things. No one thinks you're dumb for not knowing who's playing in the Super Bowl. No one thinks you're dumb uh, for not knowing the details of mass or coronavirus. No one does that. We're not in junior high. It's just you yourself that are afraid because of the fear of man. Know what you don't know. Understand that you are naive. It's noble and mature to say, I don't know. Let me get back to you. Or just stay quiet because you have nothing to contribute. You know, and therein lies the problem with those who think they have great knowledge but don't love. Their pride drives them to speak on matters of which they would do well to keep quiet because they read an article about something or they read a book on something. They just want to argue. They just want to fight. They just want to look smart. I'm thankful for people who are book smart. But the problem is when we only seek being book smart, you don't love properly because you don't know people. You're not listening. Oh, this is what you're going through? Well, this and this says this, and this book says this, and this person says this, and this verse says this. And you sit back and you say, well, this guy, I hope he stops talking soon because he's just making things worse because he hasn't even taken a moment to listen to my side, what I'm going through, why this happened. And then you listen and you say, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. Yeah, my, my friend had a miscarriage too and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's not the same. It's not the same. Some people handle it well, some people don't. Some people are strengthened in their faith. Some people realize they're not believers. You need to love. Don't just vomit out facts. I've, been, I've dealt with this uh, for the past, uh, what is it? Wow, 11 months now. Former members, other friends, oh, oh, you're not meeting in person because you're letting the government control you as they idolize a certain person who is very vocal about that with his church. They have no idea. They have occurred to you that we don't own a building and so the point doesn't even matter to us. So instead of praying that I repent, how about you pray that we can own a building in a place where buildings are so much more expensive than you can even fathom from where you're throwing your Facebook bombs at our church. It just, people get worked up and so they take the facts and they, they take this precious word and they turn it into a baseball bat. And the whole time, verse 2, they don't realize how ignorant they actually are. And what Paul is saying is that no matter how knowledgeable you are, if you are a Christian and do not seek to edify with love, then you are definitely not as mature as you think. To give you a preview, the next verse actually even says you might not even be a believer. Whenever you hurt other Christians with knowledge, you are not exhibiting true Christian knowledge because true Christian knowledge is inseparable from the loving application of it. In fact, true Christian knowledge is inseparable from God's love, which is why He gave it to us in the first place. Made it all applicable through the death of Christ. We are to speak the truth, yes, but in love. And you're familiar with that phrase, aren't you? Speak the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, literally from Ephesians chapter 4. We are to be those who are speaking the truth in love. Verse 15. In fact, I'd like you to turn there. Ephesians 4, 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love. 
And we say this. We say this a lot because we want to speak the truth, and that's good. We say this a lot because we want to remind ourselves and others that we speak the truth, but we need to be more loving, and that's good. But have you ever really thought about the context or looked at the context? That phrase, speaking the truth in love, serves as a hinge between knowing God's truth, knowledge, so that you are not swayed by false doctrine on one side, and spiritual growth and building up the body on the other side. How do we speak the truth? No love. Why do we or know the truth? How do we speak the truth? To build up. Let's read the whole context, verses 14 through 16. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Yes, knowledge is important. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. No truth, but there's a purpose to it, and it's not just to feed your ego. So knowledge, when properly understood, strengthens our faith, but also builds up the body. Neither of those are possible when we are arrogant, because neither of those are possible without love. And this is a practical tip for those who love the preaching and love the Bible studies. But that's it. 11 months of shelter in place, 11 months you have not contacted another person in church. You have not joined a small group. You have not interacted with anyone because, hey, I came to Grace Church of the Bay Area to be fed because I came from weak church and I just want to no, 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 no. What's the point of knowing if you're not applying, if you're not reaching out, if you're not calling, if you're not interacting? The person that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 8.2 does the opposite of the things we're talking about. He's just proud. He has knowledge. Again, when confronted on sin, he genuinely thinks he has not sinned. And instead of repenting, they are irritated and defensive. Because I, I know, I know, you're wrong, I know. And that just further exposes their sinful disposition and spiritual immaturity. Because they consider themselves so knowledgeable. They think they are perfect, or at least more perfect than you. How dare you talk to my life? I know, I've memorized, I can recite. So they're fine criticizing others, but refuse to receive it. And again, because they themselves do not understand that knowledge and love go hand in hand, they've never exhibited love, they've never experienced love, and so you're using your knowledge and love by confronting them so that they will become more like Christ is a totally foreign thing to them. They don't get it. They don't understand. They've never practiced or experienced or at least understood what they could have experienced that knowledge and love working together as we all strive to help one another. The person that Paul is describing here may use sound doctrine in correcting others, but not out of love or for the other's spiritual growth. Perhaps just to show off what they know, to feel good about themselves, a sense of self-satisfaction, or even personal vengeance in a form of spiritual mugging that uses the Bible in lieu of a knife or a gun. And that person that Paul is describing here has the right knowledge but lacks understanding. He knows much, perhaps more than you and I, but remains an ignoramus. True knowledge, on the other hand, does not know everything and knows it. True knowledge keeps one humble rather than proud of his achievement of such knowledge. True knowledge does not fall into the trap of self-deception, but engages in biblical self-deprecation. 
And as embarrassing or encouraging, depending on what kind of knowledge you have, this may all be on a social plane. We know that there's something so much more important than what other people think. And our last point clarifies that what is at stake is most important. Our fourth foundational aspect of knowledge is the absolute of knowledge. The absolute of knowledge. We've seen the availability. Everyone knows idols is not real. The antithesis of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The affliction of knowledge. Those who only know don't truly know. And fourthly and finally, the absolute of knowledge. The absolute of knowledge. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The absolute of knowledge is not our knowledge, but God's knowledge. The absolute of knowledge is not knowing, but being known. I think we'd all agree that we would rather be known by God than to be the most knowledgeable person in the world. Paul is quite clear that it is not our smarts that make us known by God, but our love, our love for Him. In other words, loving God is the way to come to be known by God. And the word Paul, the word Paul uses here speaks of an abiding state of recognition by God. We saw this at the end of the Q&A. God will never stop loving you once you are known by Him in a saving way. We know John 14, 21, who, that says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. In other words, you will know him. He will know you. You say, but there it goes again. Commandments, know his commandments, and do, do the rules. No. What is the greatest commandment? And what is the second greatest commandment that is like it? Keeping the commands of God is loving. Doing everything else out of love. Choosing the right side of a gray area out of love. Now remember, we're talking about Christian liberty as it pertains to preferring others. Loving God is not enough because true love of God means loving others. So you can't just say, I have nothing to do with other people, don't like them, can't stand them, but I love God. No, you don't. For one to claim a love for their Creator while harboring a hatred of His creation is a logical fallacy. You think what you're doing makes sense, but it does not. Turn to the end of your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John speaks of love and Hatred, knowing God and not being of God, very clearly. First John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Turn ahead a page or two to chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, quote, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should, not, should love his brother also. And notice that the connection goes both ways. Just as a true love for God will be exhibited by a love for others, so too a love for others that flows out of a need for self-approval or a desire for companionship is not true love because it's selfish. But let's get back to the context as we come to a close here. What does this all have to do with gray areas and specifically eating meat offered to idols? 
Now, we'll unpack this as Paul becomes more clear about the specific issue in the weeks to come. But he's saying that once you have sound theology in your head, it's easy to abuse it by not being considerate of others. In other words, the people who are fine, the Christians who are fine eating this kind of meat in front of others who may are Christians, but you eating that meat or even going to that certain vendor to buy that meat causes them to stumble because of their past. Well, you're not loving. But you have the right knowledge about the fact that it's just meat. Idols are not real. But so does that individual who you may cause to stumble. But the way that you are using that knowledge is not loving because you are hiding behind your theology to ignore the fact that you are hurting other Christians. Other Christians who may be reminded of their previous lifestyle and paganism when they watch their brethren eat that meat. And so, you see how this applies to other gray areas. I know, I know the Bible does not say drinking is sin. In fact, Paul recommends a little wine for Timothy's stomach. And I know I am not supposed to get drunk. but I was beaten by my parents because they were alcoholics. And I just can't grasp in my mind a Christian doing that. That's hypothetical. I need to clarify that because you all know my parents. They didn't beat me, nor were they alcoholics. You get it, right? You, You understand that. Grab a hand, pull her in. She freaks out. I know, I know you're different than my last boyfriend. I know that it's not wrong, but I got to tell you something about what my last boyfriend did to me, what my uncle did to me, what whoever did to me. Bible says we can do these things. Bible says, Bible looks at the Song of Solomon. It's not loving. Just the facts. Just the facts. That's not enough. And all told, the person, not the person who struggles with this, we all struggle with this to some degree, but the person who absolutely does not love at all but knows the Scriptures, it's an indication that they aren't known by God because God and God's people exhibit love. It's part and parcel of our spiritual DNA. I mean, what's the point? What's the point as a Christian or a non-Christian or whatever you are? to study the, Bi- the Bible in depth, and especially as a Christian, and not to apply it out of love. How does it even make sense? How can you even read this and not say, I need to put this down and go apologize to so-and-so, go give this person so-and-so, to pay back so-and-so, to give this person a hug, to pray for this person? How do you not do that? How, how do you read the end of the Gospels and go, yeah, well, the body contains this many liters of blood and Jesus, oh, and pressure points. Oh, the Romans knew what they were doing because the crucifixion was especially painful. And, oh, yeah, three days, that's 72 hours. Are you kidding me? How do you not explode and just say, I, I need a love? Why? Why? Just read more, read more. Give me more books. Give me more books. I've read everything by authors that are still alive today, and so go back. Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, give it all. Give it all to me. Why? What's the point if you're not going to apply it out of love? We're not called to be Christian bookworms. Hey, you want to come fellowship? No, no, I've got to catch up on my uh, uh, Steve Lawson YouTube blogs. Hey, oh, no, no, you know, this per- there's, a, there's, a, you know there's this conference going on. I want to catch it. Those things are good, but you get what I'm saying here. I don't see the point. What's the point? Well, what's the point of me doing this if, I, if I'm not saying what I'm saying? if I don't give a pastoral spin because I know you guys are struggling with this, if I don't call you, if I don't give my disciples homework, if I don't, what's the point? 
just study. You've, you've sat through sermons like that where it's not applicable at all because they just give you the Greek and the Hebrew and the facts. I mean, why spend hours studying how to practice law? Ten hours a day studying and memorizing laws when you were disbarred last year and the bar doesn't even recognize you as a lawyer. There's no point. Why purchase and study with thousands of dollars of medical equipment if you've lost your medical license and you're not recognized as a physician by the Board of Medicine? And why? Why study the Word and embrace solid doctrine if you're not recognized by the Father because you don't love? The absolute of knowledge is not knowing. It's being known. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because of your saving grace that we are known by you. That you have given us a superhuman ability to love like you. I pray that we would not just feed our minds, but we will feed our minds and embrace solid doctrine because we love you so that we will love you more. Help us to understand that loving you And loving others is inseparable. Lord, if we are those types who have just absolutely adored shelter in place because we don't like being with other people, it's given us more time to just study and memorize even the things that are good. Help us turn from that. If we're those who just like to spend time with others and not spend time with you and learn true doctrine and are willing to compromise the truth to appease what we believe are the spiritual needs of others, may we repent. Help us to find the right balance of loving the Word, studying the Word, studying the books and the sermons and the articles and blogs and vlogs and all these types of things from these men and women that you have gifted, but use it not just to feed our brains, but so that we will know how to grow and how to use that knowledge for the edification of your body, the church. Help us to practice biblical worship and biblical fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand.